Welcome to Backstage at Upstage, a presentation of Upstage Lung Cancer, which uses the performing arts to raise awareness and funding for lung cancer research. Here's your host, the founder and president of Upstage Lung Cancer, Hilde Grossman. Hi, I'm Hilde Grossman, and we're so excited to have you with us today backstage at Upstage. And here's my good pal, Jordan Rich. Hilde, thank you so much. We had such a great interview with Jill Feldman and Ivy Elkins from the EGFR Resistors that we invited each of these wonderful people back to talk further, and joining them another fine guest, Dan Wanzer, whose personal story of success and survival will certainly inspire you. So I'm all set to listen and learn, and I know many listeners around the world are as well. Hildy, it's all yours. Welcome back, everyone, to our second episode um, with the EGFR resistors. Um, there's so much more to talk about. Our first episode um, is available on um, all podcast platforms, and it was really wonderful, but there are a lot of things we wanted to add. I just wanted to do a little bit of a review with our guests. First, I'm going to just review the idea of what um, biomarker testing is, because we're talking about EGFR And I often have a resentment to initials for things because I never know what people are talking about. They'll say, did you see the CQG the other day? And I'll think, what's what's the CQG? So (laughs) we will explain EGFR um, as one of the biomarkers. And I, I think it's important to make it easy to understand. And so everybody's heard of DNA, and that contains all of your genetic information that's necessary to build and maintain who you are, and other organisms as well. But if something goes wrong in your DNA and that information somehow gets messed up, it's altered in some way, these alterations can lead to uncontrolled cell growth and cancer. So biomarker testing can reveal what particular changes have been made or what mutations there are um, that drive a tumor. So hopefully that's um, pretty comprehensible. Um, and so that information, um, we have been able to um, have our great scientists uh, find various biomarkers, which has uh, very important um, outcomes. So that being said, I'd like to welcome back um, Jill and Ivy uh, to this podcast. And we also will have a special guest in addition to our two friends who will join us today. Um, and so would you just do a very, you know, kind of a overview because we did go into a lot of important and um, uh, really heartfelt uh, information the first first go round. Can you, Jill, would you, we'll start with you. Would you just tell us briefly uh, about your own diagnosis? Sure, yes. And last time I did go into more detail about my extensive family history of lung cancer, including both my parents dying from it, which led me to kind of be my own advocate and get periodic scans from starting when I was when my mom was diagnosed when I was 27. And um, all was good until I was in my mid-30s and they found a small ground glass nodule. And we watched it for three and a half years. And after that, it kind of turned and became solid and bigger and, um, you know, had 
speculated edges, as they say, which looks kind of like a, you know, an explosion. And so then I was diagnosed at 39 years old uh, with EGFR positive lung cancer. Originally, I was stage one. But uh, with my family history, uh, you know, my biggest fear had come true and my kids were six, eight, 10 and 12. And their only association with the disease was death. So it's been quite a quite a journey, if you will, the past 13 years. And I have I initially had surgery and was on targeted therapy for a adjuvant therapy, which meant after the surgery, uh, you know, an adjuvant therapy, I, I like to call it like your insurance, you know, it's like that extra therapy that hopefully takes care of anything lurking in there. Uh, but unfortunately, the cancer came back and I, you know, have had more surgery, radiation, and I've been on another targeted therapy for the last three years. So it's been managed as a chronic disease, and I feel very fortunate. So you were saying you're on another targeted therapy. One of my understandings is that the targeted therapies can work brilliantly for a while, and then at some point, they tend not to work. And so could you say a little more about what happens when your targeted therapy, um, which is aiming specifically at your EGFR mutation, if, if that's what we're talking about today, or whatever mutation you have. So when, when that stops working well, what, what goes on? What happens? So yeah, the, uh, the targeted therapy, and it's called the targeted therapy because it directs it is directly targeted towards the EGFR mutation that you have, and it inhibits its growth or stops its growth. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily kill cells. It just kind of stops them from growing or reduces the burden of the, you know, the cancer in you. So, a lot of people do experience uh, progression. And what that means is that the cancer found a way to outsmart the targeted therapy that you're in, you're on. So I, you kind I, I look at it in the same way you look at somebody who's, you know, infection becomes resistant to antibiotics, right? We hear a lot about antibiotic resistance where that the bacteria finds a way around the treatment, the cancer's only goal is to survive. So it's, you know, when that happens, progression with a person who's on a targeted therapy, there are a lot of steps that are taken after that to try and find out why. So a patient may have a biopsy, a rebiopsy, and the, uh, they'll want to look at the cancer cells again and then see if there's something else, something specific that is causing the cancer to grow again. Um, sometimes they don't find, they don't have any information. They don't find anything, but they need to gather as much information as possible to, you know, think about what those next steps in treatment would be. It's um, so important. And we'll come back to that topic. Um, Ivy, would you also share um, your story, which you did um, so um, 
so um, brilliantly last time, but uh, for the audience today, would you let people know what your experience of finding lung cancer was? Talked about it a lot on the first podcast, but basically I had some problems with my neck and my elbow that initially I didn't think much about. And after a good six months of going to physical therapy and various different specialists, I actually learned that these problems were caused by bone metabolism metastases from a lung cancer that was in my upper right lobe. So by the time I was diagnosed, I was already diagnosed as stage four. Um, I had, you know, the mass in my lung and it had spread to several bone locations. And I also had eight very small metastases in my brain. Now, I was fortunate because I had a biopsy done on the the bone tissue in my elbow, even before they were even thinking lung cancer. And that tissue was submitted for reflex biomarker testing, which in 2013, when I was diagnosed, was just testing for EGFR, ALK, and KRAS. And it turned out that I had an EGFR mutation, which what completely changed the the direction of my treatment because that meant that I was eligible for the targeted therapy that Jill was just talking about. And I went on um, my first targeted therapy drug for EGFR. It's not the one that's used most commonly now. Um, This was an earlier um, EGFR inhibitor that had been FDA approved just, you know, shortly before I was diagnosed. And it worked fantastically for me. I had um, bone grew back in the areas where I had metastases, my brain um, mets all disappeared, and the main mass of my lung shrank, but didn't disappear. So kind of um, following on what Joe had said earlier about progression and rebiopsy. Um, after about three years, I had some progression in the tumor in my lung. And, you know, I tried to have a blood biopsy. Nothing showed up because I was basically a non-shutter. My, the DNA from my tumor wasn't getting into the blood. And I ended up having a tissue biopsy, which showed I had a new EGFR um, mutation, T790M. Just again, months before that, another EGFR um, inhibitor, which is now the standard of care everywhere, had just been approved for use in this T790M, you know, secondary EGFR mutation. And I went on that in November of 2016. Um, I'm still on it today. So it's been, I think, around five and a half years. And um, as soon as I did go on it, the progression um, shrank that I had in my lungs and my lung tumor shrank again. Now, I never had any return of 
brain mats or bone mats. So a few years after I went on this inhibitor in, in 2020, my oncologist had me do a PET scan and it showed that the only active area of cancer I had at all of my body was this initial primary tumor in my upper right lung. So I had surgery. I had a, um, a lobectomy to remove my upper right lobe. This was in February 2020. So just about two years ago now. Once since that has been removed, I've been considered NED, no evidence of disease, Yay. Um, which, yeah, is <laughs> something I never thought I would hear yeah. and is fantastic. Now, you know, given what Jill said before, I am continuing on the targeted therapy medication. However, because, you know, I mean, you don't know what's going on. You don't know. I, I still don't know if there is, you know, chance of my brain met coming back, bone met, you know, some lung cells somewhere that are cancerous that could, you know, start growing again. So I'm remaining on this inhibitor as long as, you know, as, as long as I can, basically, in the hopes that my cancer doesn't get smart enough to come back and figure out a way to get around it. The way I've thought about some of these uh, targeted therapies that over time stop working well is it's a little bit like those uh, those multi-stage rockets, you know, like one rocket gets you going and it's it works for a while, then that drops off and then you go with another. You can tell how low tech I am. I'm just trying to describe this. But in any case, um, one more rocket, one more rocket, one more rocket. And, and the, that's the goal, uh, that new secondary or tertiary, you know, third stages will be available to keep at um, outsmarting the cancer, which is unfortunately smarter than we'd like to think of it. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment. As thousands of audience members know, upstage lung cancer events, the concerts, are fun, meaningful, inspiring, and memorable. And you should know that we invest in cutting-edge diagnostic research to find lung cancer early and greatly improve on the five-year survival rate. We also bring voice to the fact that young people get lung cancer. They really do. Unfortunately, doctors don't know how or why. Proceeds from our concerts support research to help find answers to these questions. Hilde Grossman and her team aim to entertain and inform because the show must go on. Find out how you can help at upstagelungcancer.org. Now back to the podcast, here's Hilde. At this point, there's still so many things to talk about, uh, but I want to introduce our new guest today. Dan, welcome to our podcast. We're so glad to have you with us. And you have yet another story. So part of uh, my my wish for this podcast is to um, have people either who have lung cancer or who are treating lung cancer or have lung cancer in the family or know of someone with lung cancer and to realize there is a community with real people working on the problem or living with the problem and some who are trying to resist um, the cancer that causes the problem. But Dan, welcome. Um, we'd love to hear your story as well. We all have a story to tell. And I think it's uh, the more we share our stories with everyone, uh, the better off we all are. So I appreciate the opportunity. 
uh, I had a sore back that wouldn't go away. And so I saw a chiropractor. He treated it and it still wasn't getting better. And he said, well, if this doesn't get better by next week, week let's send you in for an x-ray. So I, uh, it didn't get better. And I went in for the x-ray and they couldn't find anything with my back. But what they did find is a spot in my lungs. And uh, there's only one thing that, uh, and my doctor is the one who called me. It's the only, there's only one thing uh, that I could possibly think of that could be a spot in my lungs uh, was lung cancer. And uh, it made no sense, uh, given the lifestyle I had, uh, a non-smoking vegetarian who worked out at the gym every day. And it's just like, how do you put that together with lung cancer? Because the stories we all heard were uh, lung cancer is a smoker's disease. And uh, if you don't have, if you don't smoke, you're not going to get lung cancer unless you're a minor or something. Right. So none of that made any sense. And uh, gradually over time, um, the tests got more specific until my oncologist, my new oncologist, the first time I saw her, she walked in the room and said, how did you get those broken ribs? And I'm thinking, what broken ribs? I want to find out if I have lung cancer and you're talking to me about broken ribs. She said, yeah, your, your ribs look like they were broken and they have needed back together and they're almost completely healed. So it's a good thing that you got your x-ray when you did. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't have picked this up. So that's how I found out I had uh, lung cancer. And uh, I think of that as my lucky break. This was back in 2006. So uh, there were no uh, online support groups. There were no, uh, I couldn't find any blogs. I couldn't find any organizations that had any information other than statistics. And the statistics that I looked at at that time had me thinking, I'm not going to be alive next summer. So um, I went through the treatment options that I had, which at the time there were only three options, and that was uh, chemo, radiation, and surgery. And two of those were appropriate for me. So I had chemo, and then I had the upper left lobe of my lung removed. And then I had more chemo just to make sure there was nothing left behind. Then uh, I had CAT scans every three months and uh, kept being surprised that they were clear. So it was four and a half years later before a CAT scan showed up with anything. And at that time it showed up, the CAT scan looked like if you were gonna look at the sky on a crystal clear night with a thousand stars up there. And those were the spots in my lungs. And that's how it came back. Mm. So um, uh, they did uh, biomarker testing. That was the very beginning of this. And uh, I, I tested negative for any mutations. that uh, um, uh, my doctor told me he wasn't a lung cancer specialist, so I should find another doctor. And that stunned me. I had thought I was seeing a specialist. The specialist I had seen left, and they had replaced her with this man who turned out to be a specialist in prostate cancer, which was just ridiculous. Uh, that's something that anyone with lung cancer uh, should know is the importance of having a specialist because the field is just evolving so incredibly fast. 
that if you're not a specialist, you just can't keep up with it. Well, um, I ended up in another healthcare system and they asked to retest me uh, as part of a research project to test for a lot more mutations than the three that were out at the time that, that had a treatable mutation. Uh, mine, they told me, um, there is a treatment coming out. The first targeted therapy for EGFR is coming out in about two weeks. We can wait until we get your biomarker testing back, or you can start chemo at this point, along with uh, what's called an angiogenesis inhibitor, something that stops the blood vessels uh, in the cancer from growing. Um, just stun its growth. That was the, the goal of that one. Um, and uh, I, I weighed whether or not it was better to do one versus the other first, even if I waited. Uh, there was no research at the time. So I decided to have my Brussels sprouts before dessert. So <laughs> uh, I, I went ahead and had the chemo and the, and the uh, uh, inhibitor. And then the inhibitor caused uh, damage to my kidneys. So I had to stop it. Um, so um, the next step was what they call watchful waiting. Uh, which is uh, the angiogenesis inhibitor keeps working after after you stop for some period of time, and it varies how long. So um, watchful waiting means being very nervous and being on nothing. So uh, that's what I did for about another seven months until mm -hmm. the cancer progressed again. At that time, I got on the, the first targeted therapy for EGFR. Uh, but by that time, the cancer had uh, progressed into my hips, and uh, my spine as well. It got bad enough, so there were times I had to use a wheelchair because uh, I just couldn't take the weight on my hips. Mm -hmm. So the hope was that the targeted therapy would take care of it, but uh, it didn't, so I had radiation uh, to my hips. This is, uh, along the way I started to, you know, the internet progressed during this time. And uh, there was a time I was down visiting San Diego uh, where I had some family and I was surfing the web and I found this blog, uh, which was great all by itself. And I thought the guy was, had a great blog. Turned out he was in San Diego. So uh, I contacted him and arranged to have coffee with him. And uh, that was the first person that I knew with lung cancer. And that was seven or eight years after I was diagnosed. Mm -hmm. So uh, there was no community at that time. But uh, this guy had the same mutation as me. Uh, we had so many similarities, it was incredible. And we, we became very good friends. Well, when my targeted therapy progressed, um, by that time he was in a clinical trial and my doctor had no options for me other than uh, a little bit of spot radiation and putting me back on chemo. And he had no faith that either was gonna work. So I told him about the clinical trial and he was shocked. And then even when he found out about it, he said, well, that's in San Diego and you're in Portland, that's a thousand miles away. And I said, yeah, like, is there, is there a radius clause for how far I'm gonna go before I'm gonna save my life? <laughs> you know, yeah. we didn't have that discussion, but that was, that was what was going on. <laughs> so um, I, got into that clinical trial three days before the trial closed. Oh boy. And that trial turned out to be um, 
the next generation for people with T790 mutation, T790M, the one that Ivy is still on today. And uh, I had uh, incredible success with that. I was on it six and a half years before I had any progression at all. Now, <laughs> the average is about 13 months. So um, I don't know if I hold the record. Um, I, I hope not because that means other people have lived even longer without having progression. Uh, but after that progression, uh, we started trying to figure out what's, what's the next treatment. And uh, the local oncologist that didn't know about this trial was still ordering my CAT scans and things because it was much easier than doing them in San Diego. So I had two oncologists. They couldn't agree uh, what the best option was. Neither of them had any clinical trials in their back pockets. So I did my own research on clinical trials. Then I went to the EGFR resistors uh, site and looked through all of the old posts and found another clinical trial for myself. So uh, the, the benefit of having that community around, uh, this is one of the incredible ones right here, is I found my next trial that way. So... <laughs> And I think, uh, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I was just going to say, I think that's, you know, one of the extraordinary things about this group that you guys are all part of, and Jill and Ivy have, you know, been founders of, and that is, it gives not only community so that people are not alone, but it also, there's information available, and Dan, it's it's really um, so um, important what you're talking about, and especially for listeners who aren't necessarily in a, um, you know, a teaching hospital center. Um, even in a teaching hospital center, um, people aren't always steered toward clinical trials. But they're so, so very important. Um, we did a upstage lung cancer did a, uh, on our series. Um, we did a, a whole series on clinical trials and how important they are and what they have to offer. Um, so do you want to say a little more, Jill or Ivy, about, um, you know, what's on the website and, um, you know, what you offer this community of, of people who share this um, mutation? Well, you know, one thing that is, you know, kind of unique about having a community focused on a biomarker like the EGFR resistors is, is that, you know, we, we have so many members that, you know, the chance of finding someone who is on a clinical tri trial that you're considering joining is huge. And there's nowhere else to get that type of information, really, you know, from someone else who is living with, you know, the same type of situation that you're considering, because people will, you know, identify as saying, oh, yeah, I was the first person, you know, dosed on this trial. And this is, you know, what's been a plus for me. These are some of the side effects I've had. This is how 
we've dealt with it. And otherwise, there's nowhere to get that information, that real world, you know, this comes right directly from a patient information. So, you know, I think that has been an incredible service that we really can provide to other patients. And, you know, whenever new trials open, we highlight them in our group, we highlight them in our newsletter, um, so that people in our community are aware, because, you know, as you said before, Dan, not all oncologists know about all these trials, especially if they're not right in the city that they're dealing with, and if they're not, you know, a thoracic oncologist who only focuses on lung cancer. So, the EGFR resistors is a really good resource to learn about these trial options that are, you know, really treatment for people. They're, they're a lot more than, you know, just giving, you know, back to research. I mean, they can be treatment options for people that will eventually maybe or maybe not make it into approval. But many people, you know, go from trial to trial and extend their life greatly because of it. I was just going to add, um, you know, Dan brought up of searching the internet, which most people do for almost anything from a recipe to egg, for eggs to um, health care concerns. But um, your group is so important because it is a reputable up to the minute with information that people need to know uh, and can help uh, guide them and also help give information to their own physicians if their physicians are not really up to the moment on on the latest uh, information on lung cancer. And there's a, you know, there's clinicaltrials.gov and it's very confusing to go to, and there's a couple other websites, but even for seasoned advocates and patients, it's very confusing, very complex and complicated to navigate those websites. And so that's where we come in and we try to break down kind of the specifics of the trial because there are so, so many different factors that play into whether that trial is right for you. And it's not easy to kind of break that down and, and parse through all the information. So that's really what we try to do on top of uh, people being able to talk to somebody else who has lived it because doctors, nurses, they can't give out that information of who else is on the trial. And I think just to reiterate um, what Ivy just said, you know, sometimes clinical options are the only, or clinical trials may be the only option. Sometimes clinical trials are the best option. And that is especially important, um, I think, in terms of, you know, kind of also advancing research. That's, we're all, Dan's a trailblazer. I mean, really, truly, with the clinical trial that he was talking about, the first clinical trial he participated in. So there's so much learned that then that drug became approved 
and Ivy went on it, and then it was approved further, and I went on it. So it's, you know, we learn so much from those trials. And the one thing that I think is really important to understand when you're talking about clinical trial, it's not that, you know, traditional historical thought of it's a last resort. Many clinical trials these days, people will receive maybe the standard of care, what which is what their doctor would maybe recommend, and then an added therapy. So it's very, very different than it used to be, and ethically as well, in terms of, you know, people are, people don't want to get a sugar pill or the placebo pill. Uh, they really, the FDA really looks at it and they, you know, ethically they think about what's best for the patient. So it's just a whole different world. And I really encourage people to, um, you know, look at our newsletters and talk about it within our groups because it's, you know, it's a game changer and lifesaver. And what seems to me is most important is information grows every day. And um, information and research um, continues to add new information. Well, I mean, I, I try to keep up on uh, everything as best I can. However, um, I hadn't really thought about um, that there are subtypes or subclassifications within any one of these mutations. And so um, to me, that was very enlightening because many of the pharmaceutical companies, which unfortunately often get a bad rap, but um, I think all of us have contacts with pharmaceutical companies where there's a tremendous interest in, in just upgrading and doing the newest possible treatments to help people live with this disease. So um, I, I don't know there's this um, mutation called X, uh, Exxon 20, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, which is a subclassification of EGFR, which doesn't seem to work the same way, and maybe we can leave that for another conversation. But the point is that there are subtypes, and it's, it's complicated. So for those of you who are listening who don't, who say, well, I'm not a biochemist or um, I don't speak English all that well, um, or I don't want to upset my doctor. I think part of part of being a part of a community is to give you the courage to speak for what you need and ask for what you want and to uh, find a way to keep up with the latest information. Yes, our website is www.egfrcancer.com. Dot org. And go to our website. You could sign up for our monthly newsletters. You, We have a lot of information and resources on the website. And if you are a patient that wants to join the community directly to have those conversations, we do have a closed Facebook group that you can join. EGFR lung cancer, EGFR resistors, lung cancer group or lung cancer patient group. And we always say to people that even if you aren't on Facebook socially, you can join just to be a part of this group. And there is a community there ready to fight with you and for you. 
Well, I want to thank each and every one of you for being uh, with us. Uh, maybe you have a last word to say, but uh, thank you, Jill. Thank you, Ivy. Thank you, Dan. And I do want to give you a last, you know, a last moment to plug anything you want. By the way, uh, Dan has a book out, which maybe you want to plug your book and your um, your own, is it, um, blog that you have? The blog is Dan's Cancer Chronicles, and Dan has two ends, so you can search it that way. And you can also find the book that way or go to Amazon uh, with my name, Dan Wanzer, or Second Wind Thriving with Cancer. You can find it there. <laughs> oh, geez. But there is one more thing I want to just reiterate is the value of the uh, EGFR resistors Facebook group. The crowdsourcing of information is incredible. It is such an amazing resource for anybody in the, that situation. And the last word goes to Ivy. I'd just like to um, bring everyone's attention to a brand new resource that we have on our website starting this year. We um, worked to put together um, specific fact sheets, five specific fact sheets that are downloadable, that are on our website about the EGFR lung cancer journey. Um, they could be helpful for newly diagnosed patients. They could be helpful for patients further on in their journey, but it's really the the, the main information you need to know about your EGFR diagnosis in clear, understandable language that you can print out, bring with you to your, your doctor if you'd like. Um, there, it's a really helpful resource. And we also have a video that welcomes everyone to the community and kind of explains, this is also on our website, the how, what the benefits are that they could receive from participating in the EGFR resistors. So if anyone goes to our website and you're kind of on the, you know, the, the edge about whether you should join or not, listen to that video. Take a look at those. Um, take a look at those fact sheets, and I think that you know you'll find those really helpful. And we'd love to have you be a part of our community. And um, there's so much to gain by being a part of your community, and nothing to lose. So, come on, listeners, join up today. Anyway, thank you once again, and to my dear partner, Jordan. I thank you for another great podcast uh, for. Uh, backstage at Upstage. To find out how you can join Upstage Lung Cancer in raising awareness and funding to beat lung cancer, visit our website, upstagelungcancer.org. We invite you to subscribe and download our podcast available on all platforms. And we love reviews and ratings. After all, we're showbiz people. There's more entertainment and inspiration to come on the next podcast episode of Backstage at Upstage.